that because you were getting close to your potential, you got a bit of buzz and you felt inspired. And then you go and give a pitch or a presentation and you inspire some people. Okay, now because you were inspired, you inspired them. Now you notice they're inspired. What does that do? That inspires you a little bit more. And up we go. And all of a sudden people are more energized. And that virtuous cycle is possible. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. called that the interrelated structure of reality. It's, it's this notion that life is not a movie that you watch unfold. You create the effect that you then respond to. Well, welcome to the first episode of 2021. If, like many of you, you're in the phase of looking forward or mustering the energy for the next period of work against a backdrop of everything that's swirling in the world at the moment, then I might just have something that can offer you some help with a really grounded and hearty conversation this week. My name is Steve Ingham and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. I'm a performance scientist and have supported athletes throughout my career towards the podium and have led and developed high performance teams both in sports and in business. In these podcasts, I talk with performers, coaches, researchers to try and get under the skin of human performance. And we're sharing them with you in the hope that they can help you wonder, think differently, cope or nudge you along too. If you're enjoying the pod and would like to support and encourage us too, then please do leave a review on iTunes. It definitely helps the podcast. This week I speak to Dan Cable. Dan is a professor of organisational behaviour at London Business School, where he specialises in researching and teaching topics such as change, organisational culture and leadership mindset. And Dan has a new book out called Exceptional, which I must admit was one of my favourite reads of 2020. Now, you might assume from the title that from Dan and from Dan's background that the book is about aspiring, goals, striving higher, which I must admit, which is why I got in touch with Dan to speak to him. But the book is so much more than that. For starters, Dan begins by sharing his experience of fighting and overcoming cancer, how this propelled him to ask more fundamental questions about how we live, how we work and about his existence. And the book creates the case for us backing ourselves, building on what we have experienced, recognizing our inner strengths rather than just giving ourselves a hard time all the time or entering into that sort of robotic drudge of life. This is about how we can break away from that and become so much more. And I love this conversation and I hope it's just the tonic for you starting off 2021. Dan is so full of energy, enthusiasm, wisdom and knowledge about how we can all flourish. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dan. Um, first of all, how are you? Really good. Thank you. Thanks for, um, you know, caring enough to have me on your show, basically. <laughs> <laughs> are you in work? Are you at home? Yeah, finally. I'm now doing this hybrid teaching model, which involves... Um, about 20 people in a room that I'm teaching with, and then about 40 people tuning in and zooming in. And so that's interesting, but it means I'm coming into work. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. So you I can did... put on my little mask if you'd like. <laughs> oh, wow. Gosh. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not sure how that's going to affect the sound. So I'm straight into being fussy about that. <laughs> <laughs> the plexiglass um, visor. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> so, look, congratulations on your new book, Exceptional. Uh, a wonderful read. And um, I w- in many ways, before I even opened it up, I, I was expecting perhaps something perhaps this is my own bias or my own background in performance sport, but something about, you know, the extreme circumstances or exploring extraordinary results. And then actually I I was struck quite, quite early on about the narrative of your own uh, life and death case with cancer. Was that part of the motivation behind the book? Somehow it is. And somehow it has affected me enough that I think I wanted to share that a a way that I think of it is not that it is a crisis that, you know, lots and lots of people don't have to face, but it is a crisis that gave me some of that, what's called post-traumatic growth. You know, it's the idea when you pop out the other side of that crucible, you know, of that, like really being stressed, you sometimes see the world differently enough. And while I never would want somebody to get cancer, I do like the idea of trying to squeeze any value we can out of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's like if there's a way to get a little bit of value out of that experience, let's go ahead and try to get some of that out there. Uh, that's what I that's what I wrote down. I've got loads of notes and and I think that's a hallmark of a good book when you've got notes and bookmarks and that's throughout cool. was crucible. And um but you also met actually uh, I'm I'm interested to, to there's a there's a little bit of tedium that drove you as well in terms of we'd go off on our holidays, we'd come back to home in North Carolina and we just locked in again. And there was it was just that grind aspect yep. that yeah. that you almost felt like you broke away. Was it the combination of the two or uh, yeah. both that, that uh, urged you to write? What a great question. You know, it's funny how slipping into that autopilot, it almost felt like I was winning at the time. You know, it's, it's a really, really funny phenomenon to be able to kind of look at your own life a little more objectively after one of these traumas. But the way it felt to me, you know, my lived experience was um, I went through a long period and it might have been as long as 10 years, but it certainly was six years where on paper it looked like I was winning. You know, I had all the things that I thought that I wanted, like which, you know, I wanted to be a professor at a great university, and there I was at the University of North Carolina. And I wanted to get tenure, and there I was a chaired tenured professor. And, you know, I wanted to have a nice house, and we had this 1860s house that we renovated right on campus, and cars, and a beach house, and a mountain place. It was sort of like, it seemed like I won, except I was kind of bored with myself. (laughs) And I, I honestly think I took my foot off the gas of life, but didn't really know it. I don't okay. think I tried to do that. Yep. Um, so that, that phrase of post-traumatic growth, cancer is a crucible moment. Oh yeah. I should ask, how are you? Are you okay? Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing. Um, because I got lucky, and I actually mean that it sounds funny, but I got this Hodgkin's version of lymphoma. They figured it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is so interesting and it inspires such gratitude in me that I just got born in a time when the doctors figured this one out. So like if I'd been born 10 years earlier, I would have been dead now. And instead I got born in a time when they sorted that out. It's almost just like polio as well. It's like when my dad was growing up, people got this thing. It was called polio. It killed them. It made them not be able to walk. Now we're born in a time when people don't get polio anymore. And so 
the doctors don't even want to see me anymore. After two years of checkups, after the last chemo um, appointment, they literally said, you don't ever have to come in again. It, it was, uh, it, it, to me, it was almost stunning. I actually wow. almost wanted to keep going. Yeah. Can you just check again? Yeah. Can, you check can, you just, again? can we just do the whole check again? <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like the... <laughs> I like the calm, quiet moments of, of care. But this, so, okay, wonderful to hear. And that is amazing. And, you know, we're in, in this place where we're, we're facing this vaccine for coronavirus and, and people get to express wacky views. It's sort of, actually, we're, we're in a wonderful place now that, that we can create a vaccine within 10 months from, from concept. It's an unbelievable phenomenon. And people don't quite realise how incredibly complex this particular yes. type yes. of vaccine is or could protect us from these these uh, strange viruses. Um, okay, so uh, you've mentioned this term of post-traumatic growth, and I'm really interested in this because a lot of the exercises that you mentioned through the book, which are really profound, and I love doing these, um, such as the uh, eulogy, your self-eulogy, mm-hmm. reflecting your best self. And they're, they're a super exercise of stretching those thoughts to your future self and i love the example of of nobel where he read his <laughs> an oh actual <laughs> an actual eulogy imagine i wonder if it, maybe that's a publishing service you could provide here's your eulogy uh, now go and sort it out um but those are wonderful workshop exercises and you do those exercises in the book but how do we create the the intensity of the feeling, Mm -hmm. that really profound, oh my God, I'm going to have to shift and fundamentally change in uh, the way I live my life so that it it leaps out of the page. It's beyond that that nice warm buzz of uh, facilitated workshop exercise. Yeah, that's a really good question. I I struggle a lot with that. Um, For instance, a really crass way to say this is, if you knew you weren't going to die, you really ought to just go ahead and get cancer. <laughs> it's this really, really harsh insight that sometimes it actually takes staring into that abyss to then see like, well, there's not that much time anyway, but I'm lucky to have that second go. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know if you've had that kind of experience, Steve, but for me, that was actually, you know, like I said, really useful. I wouldn't want to put other people through that. The, the risk is just so great. You know what I mean? So what I thought a lot about was, what if we could create some positive trauma? And that really seems to be what happens when you get... Now, it is obviously not the same level, but there is something really profound that seems to happen to people when you get 10 of your friends or 15 of your friends, family, colleagues, writing these memories, very visceral very emotional, very personal. The, a lot of times the stories are things you don't even remember doing. So like it almost is like watching a phantom you that really had this positive impact on your friend that made him remember it for a decade. And then you get, say, 30 of those stories. It really does shake people up. And I honestly, it's obviously not as shaking as being in, for instance, a car wreck and almost dying or something like that. But I do think that it... It's profound enough that it makes you check your assumptions on life. And I think it's far-reaching enough that it causes you to reconsider what you're capable of. 
And that's really all I can do. You know what I mean? Like we can only do so much in a book for God's sakes. Um, you know, for instance, have you ever read the book Man's Search for Meaning? Is that a yeah. book? Yeah, so Victor Frankl. Uh, it's what, just yeah. perhaps the most profound book I've ever read. For me, perhaps the most profound book I've ever read. I actually read it when I was undergoing my little crucible and it helped me a lot. But even that book, which is somebody surviving Nazi concentration camps, losing his spouse, never seeing his kid, even that profound – it's just a book at the end of the day. You, a, a book isn't a near-death experience. Mm. So you can only do so much, right, Steve? Yeah, true. I mean I, it has echoes with the performance sports sphere where people say things like – uh, penalty shootouts, you can't recreate the pressure of uh, a, f- a World Cup final. You can't recreate the pressure of performing in an Olympic stadium with 85,000 people and beaming to 4 billion people. Um, no, but you could get people that you genuinely care about around you and that would intensify the experience in a, in a similar way. In the same way that if I do a speech, for example, there's lots of people out there and obviously want to do a good job, but multiply that emotion and nervousness by 10 if it's a best man speech. Or I've got to do an assembly uh, in front of my young girls and suddenly I care. Suddenly yeah. they mean something to me. That, that seems like it's that the nearest and dearest that intensifies that, that emotion. So you're suggesting that that's uh, a device to create this feeling yeah. uh, of your future self and what they feel. That's right. And Steve, one of the things I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it matters a lot to me that these exercises are sciencey, they're research backed, you know, they're evidence based. When I was doing this exploration for this book, I couldn't believe some of it, if I'm honest. Like, I couldn't believe, for example, that writing about your best self can make you less likely to get sick. Um, there's an enormous amount of evidence that simply journaling about these issues in a consistent habitual way does something to the way our body works and you know that's stunning (laughs) that that almost is not believable except it's been replicated and replicated and replicated and so one of the things i'm proud of i think it's worth saying it's not that i did all the research i'm just proud that the book while i think it is interesting and kind of useful and all that it it stands on a a scientific platform that for somebody like me, you know, has a PhD and cares about research, it really creates a different level. It's a different level of contribution. And, you know, I guess I should say um, that wouldn't probably matter to everybody as much as it matters to me. But I, I, I just wanted to bring it up because it kind of celebrates the science of psychology and the relationship between the psychology and the biology. Hmm. And um, that that gives me a bit of a segue into this idea of a highlights reel because yeah. one of the one of the studies that after I read it, I was thinking about it for a few days afterwards was the Dorwick study with young adults with disability who are performing uh, a given task um, and they were shown a version of them un- undertaking that task, but it was their best bits and yep. that upped the productivity mm-hmm. that improved their performance subsequently 
Um, so what, what's going on there? Um, yeah. Is that is that is almost is that bolstering the self-efficacy part of I can do this, or is it just lowering the you're bad at that bit? Great question. <laughs> I mean, the most honest answer is I don't know. Okay, because, you know, <laughs> but uh, let's just muse about it. You know, we we can kind of speculate. The first thing I'm going to add in in everything what you said is true. What I loved is there was also a condition where they tried to pay them to do better. So what I really loved is there was a pure control. You people just do what you do. There was this condition where you saw a highlight reel of yourself, but just the best bits. And then there was a condition where we are going to give you considerably more money if you just don't make the errors. And it's just interesting of those three, it was the watching yourself at your best that actually delivered performance. And over time, I forget exactly how much time, but it wasn't an afternoon. I mean, it was weeks and weeks and weeks of performance. Um, what are some of the things, you know, if we just muse about this, one does have to do with being energized. There re- I, I genuinely think there is a part of our brain that likes to see ourselves doing well and being celebrated and even making a unique contribution. And I think that when you activate that part of the brain, it delivers some dopamine and, you know, all else equal, that's kind of energizing and makes you a bit enthusiastic. So that's one thing. You brought up a second thing, and maybe it's the most important one, but it does have to do with the self-efficacy of almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, where if I have the confidence and the belief that I can act that way, I'll probably be more likely to act that way, you know, just on average. And by the way, these effect sizes, they didn't produce double the widgets with half the defects, it, but it was statistically significant and substantial enough to notice, you know what I mean? It's almost like it gave them an extra 10% edge. It's, it's that kind of a thing. And there's probably a third thing in there. Um, what I was going to say, but I'm checking myself now, it could even be the just being noticed. I mean, just the idea that somebody took the time to create that, that highlight reel Maybe it just made me think about my performance a little bit more. Maybe maybe it made me think about why I'm even doing this and people noticing it. Or, you know, one thing that I'm learning in doing these um, highlight reels for people, I think we've done like 16,000 of these things now. So, I mean, so do you actually film them and, sh- and no. then edit it and then show them back? Is that a literal thing? It's not at all. I really should edit that. I really should say this differently. It's a highlights reel in a different way. This is more memories of what people remember about you at your best. And so a lot of times they're literally stories that are either typed out or spoken. So that's a really important point, by the way. It's it's not like the kicker making his or her kick. It, instead, it is a memory from somebody that you know quite well about a time that you affected them. And the real part of it is sometimes 10 and sometimes 30 of these stories. Uh, and we have to do a lot more research on you know how much is enough, and you know, what's the value of the 24th story over the 23rd? We don't know that yet. This okay. is still, that's still pretty new science. Yeah, dude. that's really interesting that. Yeah. That offers a lot. And it doesn't seem as though it's, it just sounds like it's, it's genuine and it's grounded. And I think a lot of people looking at, at, at the world of extraordinary performance and believe, and I remember this as being a, a, a really surprising realization when I first stepped into the world with Olympic champions and thinking they're not that confident they they doubt themselves a lot and I thought it was all going to be you know every morning we're going to yeah. do this we're going to yeah. smash this out almost like machines right yeah and 
And so it wasn't that sort of false gung-ho, if I believe it, I can achieve it rubbishness. Yeah. Um, it, yes. And now I'm, I'm thinking, actually, this is, this is capturing the essence of yourself much more. And do you know the, you'll be familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect. For sure. The overconfident uh, based on your skill level or naivety versus um, experienced and competent. And I think a lot of people look at the delusional spike where people, and I think we all probably had it at different points in our lives, where we've got this huge spike of confidence. I'm going to solve the world's problems with my bachelor's degree. Yes, um, yes, yes. But I'm, I'm actually just as interested in the dip where you go, oh, hang on a minute. I don't know what I'm doing. And but actually you do <laughs> by that point that you've yeah. got some competence, you've got that's some it. skill and experience. You should probably back yourself a bit more. And that's what I got a real strong sense of in the book. Is that is that am, am I? Am oh, that, Steve, you just I said to... so many wise things. I mean, there are so many important wise thoughts that you just brought up there so let me just reflect on like three of them can i just say i'm going to take that from my highlights reel yeah you should (laughs) why not it's free take two (laughs) the first one is i gotta i gotta play thing three things back to you the first one is the word grounded it is so utterly essential that these aren't just feel-good wishes that what might come true someday if you just wish hard enough into the universe, you know, these are actual events that real people that care about you were impacted by. And all they're doing is reminding you of that time you did that thing. That is actually so important, Steve. <laughs> this isn't a wish list. This isn't the secret, you know, where we send our hopes into the universe and it responds with the gifts that we, you know, it's not like that. You still have to work really, really hard to make an impact. All this is doing is showing you the way that you do it best. I think that's sort of the number one most important thing. Second thing that I that I think I got out of what you're saying here has to do with the um, not being arrogant, not being overconfident, not being a chest beating buffoon that thinks they're God's gift to the world, but instead being humbled that this is hard. And, and it's not just going to come easy to me. I mean, there may be a way that I do it better than everybody else, but that doesn't mean I just hit the button and then out comes the performance. I got to relive that. You know, I got to recreate and recreate in order to hit my high marks. And so nobody's saying this is easy. And in fact, it's hard. What we're doing is we're holding a bar higher, not lower. (laughs) We're saying get off of autopilot and see if you can hit your high spikes a little more often, not even every day, but just a little more often. And I think that that's a really important, in fact, I'm going to end on that second one because I think, I think those two things really resonate. And I know there was a third thing that you'd said in there that I was like ticking off on my brain that like, oh yeah, he really read it. (laughs) He actually read the book. (laughs) (laughs) I just read the acknowledgements. Um, So that's interesting in terms of this humility, because I think a lot of people will, will think about humility as I'll just back myself into the corner. I won't speak up. And, and that's sort of punctuated by doubt um, low ego and and not claiming uh, some sort of status, but I'm hearing here actually that that isn't the essence of it. This is about perhaps more like the Jim Collins good to great yeah. level five leader, which yeah. is 
I'm I'm humble, but I am driven for my own for for better. Whether that is in an organisational sense of making things better for other people or for myself. Yeah, that's great. I think that's spot on. And uh, there's a couple ways to think of that. One is the idea that, and I think it's surprising. Like, let me tell you, here's how it's surprising. Here's how it's surprising. I teach a lot of senior leaders here at London Business School, and there'll be 60 of them sitting there. And you might think that the worst thing you could do is take a bunch of highly celebrated, highly successful leaders and then tell them how great they are. You might think like, oh my God, you're going to make them into arrogant, complacent slobs. You're going to demotivate them. I mean, if you tell people how great they are, you're going to make them relax. And that's not what we find at all. (laughs) What we find is you give them these stories about how great they are and they get humbled. They actually and literally will say, A, I can't believe the people took the time to write these. B, I can't believe the impact I'm capable of. If I'm capable of that, why am I not being it more often? I didn't know that I could have that kind of an impact. Let me try to be more. And that is so exciting to me. It's so exciting to me that that's almost like an optical illusion. Because in advance, you look at it and you see it all wrong. And it's not until you're through it and you like hold the ruler up. And you're like, yeah, those lines are straight. You know, until I put the ruler to it, I thought that they weren't straight. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it's different than how it looks. And I think that is such an interesting, important element that our gut intuition is you wouldn't want to celebrate people and certainly not celebrate yourself because then you'll become complacent. And you'll make people complacent. And so this whole notion, I really like what you were just saying there, Steve, the whole notion of like hiding your gifts and not shining your light and not singing your song. One lens is that's selfish. You know what I mean? If you've got something to give, why are you hiding? Well, I like that. I'm going to come back to that. And this phrase that you had in the book about powering through the uncomfortable, which was, which is really strange. But can I, just pick on something. Of course. I, I don't know whether just a bit of an instinct to the, an underlying part of the, where you started there around confident, successful business leaders, that, that there's a natural perhaps um, impression that they're going to have a high positive self-regard. They're going to, they're going to back themselves. They're going to perhaps be a little bit arrogant about the success, the status, their wage, whatever it might be. There's an, there's a natural assumption to to that and but you indicated that actually going through this exercise perhaps unlocks a different feeling in them where maybe in a similar way to the olympic athlete i thought they were going to be super confident but when i got to know them they were riddled with self-doubt and actually needed a lot of the science to to recognize what they are good at so what's going on there, Dan? Is that a facade? Is that a protective mechanism that comes out of brash behaviors in a business context as a protective mechanism? Is that right. what's going on there? Let's muse about that. There's a lot going on there. Some of it, <laughs> some of it is straight up imposter syndrome. You know, I'm not saying that that happens even 10% of the time, but I will say there's a lot of business leaders that feel like they faked their way in and that they're going to get caught. 
And so maybe part of sitting in the corner and staying quiet, and not shining their light too brightly, is that they're a little worried that maybe that bright is their light isn't quite bright enough. So I think there's some there's some of that that's self doubt. And by the way, I've been there before. You know what I mean? When I first became a professor, I I thought it was sort of a the world playing a joke on me. <laughs> the universe going to try to pull the rug out. You know what I mean? So that was one um, possibility. A second one, I really like what you were saying, almost like this defense mechanism. I'll take that a step farther. In business, especially in senior leadership, there was and probably still is a tendency to kind of hide the emotions and leave them at home and just be like a maximally, optimally functioning machine, you know, uh, data in, data out, logic, rationality, you know, the stuff that is really important, but is the very small part of our brain. <laughs> and I think that when you whack them with these strong, personal, emotional, concrete stories, they kind of get rehumanized in a way they weren't expecting. One quote from one senior leader was, I opened up this report thinking I'd spend 10 minutes on it. An hour later, I felt humanized. Wow. And that direct quote tells me a lot. <laughs> they thought they were just going to flick through it, then get back to the real stuff. And instead it drew them in and it left them you know, hair raised on their arms and, you know, like yeah. it, it, it made them feel gratitude. It made them feel love. It made them feel connectivity. What was it that dehumanized them? <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to the inverse already. <laughs> I will say that a lot of business environments are dehumanizing. Yeah, okay. um, that's not really what this book is about. But I will say I find it very funny that around 1900, we humans got this idea to scale stuff up. And to scale stuff up is going to be making people into robots, essentially. And we built businesses mostly around making people into robots. <laughs> and unfortunately, and I do really mean unfortunately, it can be very dehumanizing. And you really can after a year or then five years or then 10 years and some of these big firms end up feeling like a number that doesn't really matter other than your value production that day. Hmm. Uh, that, I'm gonna I'm gonna park that because that's a big tangent. I could yeah, that's a explore. separate issue. That's a separate um, issue. But can I come back to this idea of powering through the uncomfortable? It sort of speaks to this awkwardness. We're not necessarily happy to be vulnerable or naturally um, thinking about ourselves as and self promoting in in a, in a way. What can people do to? Uh, enable themselves to think differently you mentioned being actually it's, it's, it's flipping it around and saying it's, it's a little bit selfish if you're not actually bringing your gifts to the world what else could they do yeah one of the things that i stumbled on that i did not know even just three years ago is that our brain does something called meta processing now i'm not a neuroscientist so like I only get this reading the science like anybody else would, but apparently for real, our brain is doing some background buzzing and it's watching us act and keeping notes on how hard stuff seems. Now, when we start doing something new, that's not practice, something we've never really done before, it feels kind of awkward and even hard. And the brain takes note of that. And this is a real problem. This is a real problem because it means that as we shift our habits we have to break through something uncomfortable while our brain is saying like, oh, that's not really you. 
They, that's not authentic to you because see how hard it is? See how hard? That's not you. You should stick with the stuff that you, you know. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Mm. And if we want to get close to our potential, it's kind of like running or kind of like pushing exercise. It's got to hurt a little bit. And maybe you can call it good pain, but like if it's not breaking up some muscle, you're not really doing a lot of good. <laughs> and so I know you're the expert in that and I'm not. But I do know that when I'm running up the hill, Primrose Hill, if I'm not wheezing a bit, I'm not doing it hard enough. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, we're, we'll get into the exercise intensity, but you're not fitter immediately afterwards. It takes time and it takes time for your body to go through a restitution and recover. So that, that key concept that you've got in step two about reflecting, that, that's the, almost the, that's the match there with yeah. the physical training yeah. development, the reflection being yeah. the, the development for you and your mind, I think. Um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talked about a little bit about that, didn't he, in terms of, of, of actually immersing yourself and then having time out yeah. to, to, to benefit. Yeah. It feels to me like I didn't entirely answer your question or get to your point, though. And I think that I'll just say one more thing about it. And then if we've nailed it, we've nailed it, Steve. You know, keep coming at me if I didn't get to it. I just want to say that I think that it's very uncomfortable for many people to sit there and play their own memories of when they felt like they were at their best. I've been told by many, many people that just isn't comfortable for me. And the evidence and the science suggests that may be true, but it's very hopeful if you want to get closer to your potential. If you want to get there more often, that's a helpful exercise. Another one is, oh, it's really awkward to ask people around me to report how great I am. And a way to flip that is to say you're asking people around you to help you understand your contribution. You're, you're asking the people around you to give you feedback on how you can make your biggest impact. And, you know, these are little mind games. These are flips because if you just approach it, ooh, awkward, run away. But if you unpack it and you power, as you say, you power through it. What you're really doing is trying to say, how can I give what I've got? At least, you know what, Steve? That's how I think of it. That's how I'm thinking about the problem. It's not me, 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 me. Look how great I am. I'm so immodest. I'm an American. <laughs> it's, it's more we all have capabilities. Let's not take them to our grave. <laughs> Let's try to get them out there. Maybe, maybe they could do that under the auspices of uh dan cable told me to <laughs> yes, yes, I, I don't, wa don't want to do this yeah, but this isn't me it's a taking cover behind the book <laughs> yeah. i've just got to fulfill this exercise is that okay um but there's there's another phrase in there that that really intrigued me got a proper highlight um was the stories we tell ourselves about who we are have a way of becoming true tell me more Tell me more, because this is fascinating. And uh, it, it sparked all sorts of thoughts about yeah. our narrative, what goes yeah. on in our brain and the choices that we make. I love it, man. I love it. I, this is the part of the book. It may feel like this part of the book doesn't have enough exercises and workshops. But for me, it's so important to start with this notion of a self as a story. It's actually like the first step in my mind in terms of this thing I call the positive method. Step one is you have to start thinking 
that who you think you are and what jumps to the front of your brain when you think me has a big influence on how we act. So like if you take an abused kid, I wrote about like some abused people, it's really, really sad. But if you got an abused six, seven, eight year old, by the time they're 12, they think they're shitty people. They, if, if you say, who are you? What jumps to mind is, oh, I'm just not very good at stuff. So then that affects what clubs they go out for. Do they go out for the sports team? Do they try to make a new friend? It, it, and then when they're 18, they start dating people that hurt them. Why? Because they don't think they're any better. And the, what, oh, what excites me so much, Steve, is flipping that story and saying, well, what if we could make the first thing that comes to your mind be what you're capable of? What, what if what popped to the front of your mind, it was bright and chronically accessible, was me at my best? Well, then that would start to affect the way that you acted and what you brought into the room and what you brought to your family and what you brought to your team and just how ignited you were with life, essentially. And there's evidence that suggests life does feel better when you're at your best. You know, Csikszentmihalyi, for example, calls that flow. But these – you probably know so much about that. But uh, the whole notion of your peak state and kind of when you're almost lost in life because you're getting close to your potential. Again, that's not an easy place to be, but it is a very exciting, delicious place to be. Mm. And when I when I read through the step three section about that regularity of of you referring to or utilizing your strengths, it didn't feel. And again, this this speaks to what I sense was the grounded nature. It didn't feel like you were pulling back the shirt and revealing the big Superman symbol. This was about you being consistent and. And, and there was an almost an outward facing, if I'm going to be consistent, a consistency being a big part of, of whether people trust me or not, yeah. if I'm regularly playing to my strengths and delivering upon those, that feels as though it's just sort of upgrading most days. Yeah, that upgrading most days. That's, that's a really nice phrase. And a way that I think of it is not that you're going to be at that peak flow state 24-7, seven days a week, but more like a little bit more each day. And the evidence is that that starts to buzz outward. That starts to make other parts of the day feel better. You, there's upward spirals that happen. You know, there is a science around this. Like, for example, Steve, say it was the case that because you were getting close to your potential, you got a bit of buzz and you felt inspired. And then you go and give a pitch or a presentation and you inspire some people. Okay, now because you were inspired, you inspired them. Now you notice they're inspired. What does that do? That inspires you a little bit more. And up we go. And all of a sudden people are more energized. And that virtuous cycle is possible. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. called that the interrelated structure of reality. It's, it's this notion that life is not a movie that you watch unfold. You create the effect that you then respond to. And I think that that's really powerful and interesting. And so you're absolutely right. It's not a matter of say, saying, you know, let me expose you to my inner super person, my superman, my superwoman. It's a matter of saying there are certain strengths that come naturally to me and that energize me, but I have to stretch into them. It, it's not as though just because I have them, I'm some kind of superman. It's more like each year and maybe even each week, I find a way to be that a little bit more and kind of surf on that strength a little bit. 
And for me, there's just something really counterintuitive about that to many people because a lot of people think like playing your strengths, that's like taking it easy. That's like coasting. <laughs> and uh, boy, talk to your athletes, right? talk to your Olympic athletes about whether it's easy to knock out that third gold medal. <laughs> mm. Oh, you already got two. You're just mailing it in to get the third. You know? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a fascinating particular area around, around those strengths. I think we all, always from scientific profiling point of view, we always default to this idea of, well, I just need to point out the bits that they need to sort out. And that's not a good place to start the conversation. It might be where the conversation needs to get to, but it definitely creates a barrier. Certainly when this isn't about in a narrative, this is about you supporting others is the first thing they hear is that's rubbish. That bit of you is rubbish. Therefore, we should sort out some training or some skills to to develop that physical, mental quality. You should start. I don't know whether this is a, f- a feedback burger or what. I mean, that's probably a bit too simplistic. But here's here's what makes you great. Yeah. Because people already know they're good at that in an elite that sport, level, particularly. Yeah. They know they're good, and so they often don't know why. So. You're good for these reasons. This makes you amazing. This is unique. This is a signature of yours. This is hard to imitate. This is fun to watch. <laughs> this is unique. This is your fingerprint. I think that our brains love, get turned on by, get excited by hearing what we're uniquely good at. And I think it's, I mean, again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but it's called the, you know, this ventral striatum. There is evidence that this seeking system, this ventral striatum, literally like lights up when you get people to reflect on what about me is unique and valuable that I can bring to the party. And starting with that is energizing and it's a boost as opposed to deflating. You know, here's where you suck. If we can just make you not suck as much, you know, that will never get you to great, right? That will never be inspiring to, to not suck as much is not very inspiring. <laughs> now, it must, it must, um, it must suppress learning and acceptance threatens. or behavior change in that Because sense. it creates threat, it closes down the learning centers of the brain. Dopamine goes down. You know, it's more like a fear threat kind of response. And so it's, that's not, well, you, again, you probably know a lot more about this than me. I, I, I sometimes forget who I'm speaking with. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm learning as we go. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I think that we all have weaknesses. None of, we're all going to die imperfect. That said, if the question is given the little bit of life you have left, how do you make your best impact? Start with your strengths. Start with what you do well and figure out a way how to stretch that into more impact. I love that. Um, Dan, it's been amazing talking to you. Um, you you've, the conversations inspired me, the books inspired me. So have that back, have that back as, uh, as my message and, and uh, convey that the book is so accessible and is caringly woven with that story underpinned with your profound life death experience and the science underpinning it which is which makes it really practical believable Mm -hmm. and implementable so uh, it's got notes and bookmarks throughout it and so congratulations on the book and thanks for thanks for joining me dan steve thank you so much for reading it but also for the very insightful questions i really appreciate that (laughs) 
I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dan. Give Dan a follow on Twitter at Dan Cable and look his book up, Exceptional. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and support underscore champs. Have a look at our LinkedIn and Instagram page, Supporting Champions. If you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development to help you and support you to go to the next level in work, life or sport, then have a look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching hyphen mentoring or drop us a note at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk and you can sign up for a free consultation to explore which package is right for you. 